0: How's everybody doing? Woo! Kids, you ready for about an hour and a half of a sermon on the sin and the law that's in your heart? Um, yes! Look at that. I heard yeah, It's a Whitmire. It's like, yes, I would love to hear about the law and sin. It's fantastic. Man, I tell you what, I, I've loved this series. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in several passages today. We're in our Reverb series, uh, and we've talked about th- this this idea of reverberation or what it, what it means to reverberate as the church, which is extend, which is to repeat um, what God has done in us. And there's a passage in Matthew chapter 5 that, I mean, I feel like it, it is a reverb passage, but it will kick us off today in a direction that you um, might not suspect, but is one that is absolutely essential when we, if we want to reverberate the light of Christ out in the world. Um, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he's preaching Sermon on the Mount, it's an amazing passage. Uh, It's the best sermon ever preached. I mean, you can't get better than Jesus, right? Um, He says in uh, verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp or put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. That's what you would do with a lamp. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's reverberation. That's taking uh, our identity, what what Christ has done inside of us, that people would see it, that it wouldn't be something that we would hide and just blend in. That in for the right reasons that we would we would stick out, that we would reverberate. And we've talked about this idea of reverberation. It's, you know, from a musical sense, we've talked about it every week. You know, the when you use reverb in music, uh, the artist plays the initial chord. And then the reverb effects, they reverberate it, they repeat it, they extend it, and it sounds pretty amazing. And for you and for me in Second Corinthians chapter 5, we understand and know that we've been given this amazing thing as followers of Jesus. We've been brought from death to life in Jesus. We weren't just a little bit bad, needed to get a little bit better. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, and we needed to be brought back to life. And for us that follow Jesus, now that we are back to life, we get the opportunity, it says in 2 Corinthians, not that we have to carry, but that we can't help but carry the ministry of reconciliation. This same amazing news that Jesus saves and nothing else does, but He's come to rescue and redeem even the ones that are walking away that are rebellious. Amazing news. That's reverberation. We, don't, we didn't bring redemption. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't do anything to save ourselves. Dead, dead people can't save themselves. Jesus plays the song of redemption, but we get to repeat it. And that's what's happened in history, right? We've talked about that's a great definition of reverb. Something happened in history that still reverberates today. The cross of Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, the scandalous idea of grace sins past, present, and future, annihilated by what Christ did on the cross, and now I stand approved of by the King. That message has reverberated on the lips and praises of people for over 2,000 years. It's crossed geography and it has crossed the span of time all the way into this room. That's reverberation. But we, as the followers of Jesus, are called to continue reverberating. So when I look at this passage, when I look at Matthew chapter 5, there's one thing that stands out to me. Because I think in some ways we can have a fractured view of good deeds. It says in 16, it says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. I should shine before others that they might see my good deeds and that they would give glory to my father in heaven, that they would, they would see and worship the same God that I worship. They would realize that he is the one true God because of my good deeds. Now, when I, when I hear the word good deeds, I don't know about you. Maybe it's the way I grew up. I always think about the law. And today we're going to talk about the law and how the law is woven into the story of the gospel. Sometimes we separate the law and put it in the past, but the law is essential for us in understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a misunderstanding, a broken view of the law and its, its usefulness in our lives and the way that it operates, we'll, we, we, will, we will not reverberate if we have a broken view of the law. It's interesting, a few weeks ago, I was out surfing with my son Abe and uh, having a good old time. This couple paddled out and I'd seen this couple before, talked to them before, uh, particularly the wife. A couple years ago, she asked me some questions about religion. People would just find out that I'm a pastor, and all of a sudden, they'll have the deep theological or philosophical question that's very ambiguous and weird, and they'll come paddle up to me and said, hey, we were talking over there. Answer this question for me. I'm like, I have no idea. I'm not that smart. And so she had asked me one of those questions, and she paddles up to me this particular day, and she says, it's crazy that I'm seeing you. And I said, well, why is that? She said, I've had two people this week have talked to me very directly about Jesus, and I know you, you're you're a Jesus dude. Uh, and now I'm seeing you, and maybe God's trying to tell me something. And she says, "You know, you know my story." And she had told me before that she was an atheist, but had then gotten to this idea of kind of spiritual awakening. Like there is something, like there's something bigger and greater than us. It's kind of the this something was definitely happening with her, but she's like. Jesus is not it's too narrow there's too many other things there's too many other people experiencing life you know I think you know religion could be surfing it could be the earth um and she's but she said I'm still searching there's something that's unsettled in my heart so I I asked her I said well what is it about the Jesus thing that turns you off so much and she says I don't know I mean she just kind of gave some of the typical answers and I said well how did you grow up she said I grew up very religious my household was extremely religious you know, it was, and I said, well, how was that for you? Well, it was oppressive in, in some ways. Like, fun and life was over here, and then all the rules and regulations and the things that we weren't allowed to do was in church world. That, that is the thing that we had to do. That's how we had to look. And I said, well, go, let's go a, a little deeper. How, what did that make you do? And she said, we all hid. Me and my brothers and sisters, we still did the fun stuff. We just didn't let anybody know we were doing it. We hid from our parents. We did it. But we, we on the outside, we went to youth group. We did all the nice stuff. But uh, uh, behind the scenes, we did all the things that we weren't supposed to do. And she said, in fact, my parents did too. If anybody would have seen inside the walls of my house, they would not have thought of us as quote unquote Christian." And she said, so as soon as I had the opportunity to walk away from faith, I did. I mean, I just couldn't. I, I, the, the idea of putting on a show for everyone and then on that, the other side of the fence, looking how you want or doing the things that everybody else was doing anyway and acting like you were better than everybody else. She, knew, she said, I knew that wasn't right. So I left the church. If this is what Jesus is about, if this is what church is about, if this is what religion's about, I don't want any of it. And it's interesting, if we're talking about reverberation, and how to carry the gospel to people in such a way that they actually open their eyes, that they see the light, that they see the good deeds, that they see who we are, they see a better life, they see that Jesus saves and nothing else does, and they decide to become worshipers of Jesus too. Then the, one, the thing that we don't want to put on the outside is hypocrisy. It's interesting, Mahatma Gandhi says this, and I, I don't disagree with him. He says, I like your Christ, I do not like you your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I think that can be very true. And part of that, what we don't know, I think sometimes we think about all that, what are the things that 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 people hate about Christianity. At the top of the list, if you Google it or you do some research and look and and find, there's been tons of surveys done like, why don't you like church? Because people want to know. Pastors want to know. Why do people not want to come? Why do people not want to be attached to this thing called Christianity? What is the thing that makes us not liked? Not that people don't like us, but there's a a whole swath of people that are not walking down the path of Christianity and they don't want to have anything to do with it. And at the top of the list, anybody can give me a guess what the top of the list of why people don't like Christians? Anybody? Hypocrisy. Popped right out. It's at the top of the list. Hypocrisy and it's second cousin judgment. Both of those things, they sit together, and that's why people don't like Christians. Because they feel like we believe that we are The city on a hill is something like we've put ourselves up on a hill. We've put a veneer on the outside that everybody can see. They can see our good deeds. They can see all the good things that we've done. They can see the mission trips. They can see all the things that we do in church. We serve in church. We we, we do all this wonderful stuff. We don't do the bad stuff. We don't go dancing. We don't drink. We don't smoke. We don't do all these things. But we do all the good things, and you are all bad. Down here at the bottom of the hill, you're down. We're up on the high hill, and we're shining our bright light so that you can see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. You think that's the context of the passage? Absolutely not. But that is the picture that can go out to the world. Do you think that reverberates? No. That's hypocrisy. That's judgment. It's what Jesus came and was more I think if 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 you find anger like righteous anger in the in Jesus' journey on planet earth, it was always towards it wasn't it wasn't this, you know frustration and anger towards the broken and the lost towards the prostitute towards the tax collector these people that had sin in their heart because he knew that they without him that they would never choose the right thing that they were dead in their sins and trespasses but the religious ones that knew the truth about who God was but they still chose to put on a white veneer on the outside and they were whitewashed graves is what he said they were dead on the inside they just did what they wanted on the inside but they wanted to make themselves look better than everybody else. And that was the greatest sin of all, in his opinion, the sin of pride and hypocrisy, the pharisaical thing that we put on the outside. That certainly doesn't make people want to come to church, want to listen to you. you don't, you're not going to have leverage with anybody in that situation. But where does that come from? We all know what hypocrisy is on the outside, and we, we're going to try to not do it. But it comes from a broken view of the law. And there's a couple of broken views of the law I want to look at today. And then we'll, we'll talk about how does that all work together. How is the law, when it's looked at correctly, how is it woven into the gospel in such a way that it will reverberate? Okay? So I, I, it's, mo- it's going to be one of the more theological talks I've done in a while. Of course, I picked when elementary kids entered the service, so we're going to do our best. It is actually it, the under this my brain when I when this all of a sudden the lights came on by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it was after I was a Christian for some time, when I started to realize the way that this worked together, it cleared up a lot of confusion for me because people always talk about well, you know, if, if it's grace, 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 then. Why do we even care about the law? Why can't we just live how we want? And the people that are like, hey, there's the law, it's all over the, the Bible, and, and why do you always preach grace? Why? We, need to, we need to lean towards, you know, people need to be better. But how does all that work? And how does it work with the gospel? If we really believe that since past, present, and future are eliminated, are annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ for followers of Jesus, that put their faith in him. If that is true, then how does the law work? How is, a, how, does, how, does that, how is that woven into the gospel, or is that just something of the past? So the first problem that I want to uproot, and it's done so beautifully in Scripture in so many different places, but the Apostle Paul does it um, here in Galatians chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be moving around. Like I said, we'll be in Galatians, we'll be in Romans, we'll be in the Psalms. He's, and I'll give you some context. In Galatians chapter 2, he's speaking to the, the church at Galatia about, um, about being, being religious, about leaning and putting their identity back in the law when their identity should have been in Christ. They, they they took pride in and they thought what it meant to be a Christian, they kind of drifted back into the, the old ways of believing, living like a Jew, doing all the things that we should do. The Abrahamic covenant that we have puts us in a higher place than everybody else. And the Apostle Paul writes to the, the church at Galatians and says, you, you've, You've believed a false gospel. You've believed something that's not true. Your identity shouldn't be in the law. So the first broken, broken view is we believe the law is our, our identity. There's a belief that the law is our identity. It's interesting, I was thinking about that before we even get into Galatians chapter 2, and how I, I grew up. I grew up in a Christian school for 15 years. I loved it. I learned the Bible there. There were so many people that were amazing there, but maybe it's just the way I heard things, or maybe it was just an absence of it in the way that things were preached and taught. But what I heard and the way that I thought was, you, you have to do the right thing in order to look like a Christian. Now again, that doesn't mean that there's no good works, that doesn't mean that we don't do the right thing, but that was your identity. So your identity in that in that context, in that school that I grew up, it was Here's the bad people, here's the good people. Here's the people that are Christians, and here's the people that are not Christians. And it was all based on outward behavior. It was all based on what you do. Somebody told me recently that that went to that school um, and said this was hanging in their house uh, growing up. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Mm, That's a good one, isn't it? And and really the, the essence of that is Have you done enough good stuff in order to call yourself a Christian? Have you done enough good stuff in order for the people around you, for your church friends, for the people outside the church that say, that's what a Christian looks like. That's what a Christian does. That's Christian identity. And the Apostle Paul comes so Hard against that in the church of Galatia. And he uses an, an encounter that he has with Peter. And I'll just give you some context. If you were with us in the book of Acts, there's this amazing transition. The gospel blows up. You've got the gospel moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? You see the progression all through the books of Acts, just the way that God commanded it. Jesus said, This is the way that's going to happen. Spirit's going to come, it's going to start here, and it's going to move outward. And it finds its way to this place called Antioch. We talked about it, very diverse, a lot of Gentiles. Well, there was this wake-up call that Peter had, right, with Cornelius. He thought that, hey, this is a, this is a Jewish thing. The, the gospel's moving amongst the Jews. And then all of a sudden, God gives him a vision, tells him he needs to go to this guy Cornelius. The Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius' house. All of them get saved. It's really amazing. Peter's like, I can't believe this, this is for everybody. The gospel's even bigger than I thought. And then all of a sudden, the same thing starts happening in Antioch. And then some of the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem come to Antioch to see what's happening. Barnabas, a bunch of them come to check it out. And Peter was one of them. And in the beginning, he's hanging out with the Gentiles. And everybody's, I mean, it's just kind of now it's like, man, this is crazy. We used to not even be able to hang out with that guy. We couldn't even talk to that guy. We couldn't even go eat with that guy. Now we're all brothers. Now we're all hanging out, unified in Christ. It was really good. It was really powerful. But all of a sudden, a super religious group of Jews came called the men of James, They came and all of a sudden Peter changed his tune. And this is what happens. Paul tells a story to the Galatians. He says, When Cephas, who was Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came, uh, certain men came from James. He used, which are just like the super group of uh, Jewish people. Just think Jewish and really Jewish, like in terms of obeying the law. He, He used to eat with the Gentiles before these guys came. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He was afraid of those who were the law abiders that had just showed up. These people that were still thinking the law was their identity and they operated that way and they thought they were better than all of the Gentiles. And he goes on to say, now guess what happened as a result of that? The other Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas. I love that he says that because he's like, he loved Barnabas. He's like, Barnabas is the man. Everybody loves Barnabas. Barnabas has some serious reverb in, in, in the mechanism. Like he can get out there and do it. And all of a sudden now you've made Barnabas a hypocrite too. And he goes on in this passage to explain, you've missed it. You've missed it. Your identity is not in the law. Your identity is in what Christ has done. You're no longer leaning on the Abrahamic covenant. You're no longer leaning on the fact that you have a bloodline, a Jewish bloodline. You've missed it. You've become a hypocrite. You've gone back. And he tells the Galatians at the end, he says, for freedom, Christ set you free. Why would you go back to that slavery? Live free. You are all united, brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't go back to that place. That is not going to reverberate out to the world. Who's going to want to be a part of that? But they thought that's what made them value. They put on a veneer and they practiced outward righteousness. While on the inside, they were whitewashed tombs. They were graves. They were full of sin. They were hiding their sin. That's our response to, to a real religious environment, isn't it? Just like my friend said out in the water. It's what I did in, in school. I'm going to put as much good stuff on the outside, but behind the scenes, I'm still rotten inside and I still need a savior. The law didn't save me in this context. We have a broken view of the law. And this happens to all of us. I think, I think, you know, in our church, we preach the gospel of grace. I mean, our mission statement is we exist to invite anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace that comes through Jesus. So I think if you're going to lean in a direction, sometimes something can get broken even in that. Even in this idea of, of, of just talking about the initiation of the gospel of grace that you, you didn't do anything in terms of your salvation, which is absolutely true. But does that mean nothing happens as a result of that? But all of us, I think, can come under this idea of identifying with the good things that we do. The padding of the resume. I do it. like I'll, I'll drift back into slavery and identity in the law. And it's in subtle ways. It's not like I'm going back and looking at Leviticus and going, man, I need to just cut the corners of my beard square because that's what the law says. Uh, but sometimes I'll, I'll be at somebody's house and I'm like, they're reading Bonhoeffer. I should read Bonhoeffer. You know, the, All they do, they don't watch Netflix. They just read about church history and all the, the, the dead Christians that went before them. And I watch Netflix and I just all of a sudden I get down on myself. I'm, I'm my own condemnation. I take my own, I, the, the, the law and I condemn myself with it. And I say, man, I got to get better. I got to, man, I got to start reading more stuff. I got to, you know, dive into some Spurgeon sermons. I got to, you know, that guy audits seminary classes. He fasts. He he talks to me all the time about fasting and praying and and how God's working through that. I'm like, do I fast? Do I pray? I mean, I fast sometimes to lose weight just the beginning of the day. And then at the end of the day, I eat just hoping, you know, I didn't eat all day today because I'm crazy and then it doesn't work. But I don't do it for religious reasons. And all of a sudden I'm condemning myself and I begin to pad my resume to build myself up because I begin to believe that it's my identity and it's an absolutely a lie. Sometimes we do it in the way that we think we, we we've made a good decision. You ju- we just think we're better than other people. I don't live that way. We look at somebody that lives a certain way and we have disdain for them. We have no compassion for them because they're broken and lost in the way that they act. Think about the people. I mean, just, you watch the news and you watch somebody and you don't even know who they are. And it's like, I hate them. I hate what they just said. I wish they would die. I mean, we we get so frustrated and angry. But what that is built down into the framework of who we are is not justice, it's self-righteousness. Believing that, we can't extend compassion to the worst of the worst because you were. You might be able to put the veneer on the outside, but deep down inside, we were all dead. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God is so powerful that He can save any of them. Do you know how frustrated, if you watch the life of Jesus... That people were, that Jesus extended grace to people that you would hate, that you would be frustrated with, that you would have no compassion for. And he called it self-righteousness. If we have a broken view of the law, guess what's going to happen? We will not reverberate. We will be hypocrites and we will have zero compassion for the lost because we'll look at people like we're better than they are. Well, you're in that situation because you made this mistake, this mistake, this mistake, this mistake. This is why you're on the side of the road with a sign that says, we'll work for food. Don't tell me you haven't ever had a value judgment about somebody. Like, they, they just need to get a job. McDonald's is hiring. I mean, have we ever done that? It got real quiet in here, didn't it? I've done it. It's self-righteousness. It's a broken view of the law, and it doesn't reverberate. The Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8, he says very clearly, he says, he says, You have been saved and rescued. You have, there is nothing, there is no condemnation that stands against you. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is unbelievable, beautiful news that he brings. But he continues in Romans chapter 7. He says that in 8, but he also says that in in Romans chapter 7. And he says this He says, What shall we say then? If the gospel is that good, if your sins pass, present and future annihilated by the cross why why do we need the law what shall we say then that the law is sin we don't need it it's bad by no means yet if i had not if it had not been for the law i would not have known sin for i would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet you could stick anything in there. He's just using being coveting or wanting somebody else's stuff as an example. If the law wasn't there, there would be, if there wasn't the moral fabric of the law that God created and commands and the way that it works its way out in Scripture, then we wouldn't know. I wouldn't know, like telling a lie, even a small one, I wouldn't know that it was bad unless there was a law or a command that told me that it was there. He's saying the law has value. We don't throw away the law. Yes, since past, present, and future annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ, but the law is valuable, but it can't save you. It cannot rescue you. There's no con- You are no longer condemned by the law. It says in Romans chapter eight, you've been set free from the penalty of sin, which you which the law p- convicted you. You've been set free. So it can't save you, but the law is useful. I've heard it said like this, and what the apostle Paul's saying is. It shows us, it's the thing that lets us know, oh, I don't measure up and I need a Savior. I need Jesus because I do covet. I do lie. I do get angry. I do wish people were dead sometimes. Deep down in the recesses of where I never want to tell anybody, but it's there. It lets me know that I need Jesus. I've heard the example of an MRI. Dan Triffoletti is a cancer doctor and he would love this illustration and probably correct it. But... An MRI will show you things, right? It's very useful and powerful in medicine. I mean, without it, like if somebody comes in and says, man, I got some things going on. I don't know what it is. I'm feeling this, feeling that. They might say, well, we're going to give you an MRI and see what's up. And then all of a sudden they do an MRI of a certain part of your body. And all of a sudden they're like, you have, unfortunately you have stomach cancer or you've got cancer of the liver. You've got this, you've got this tumor that's over here. But thank goodness that we saw it. It's, it's important that we see it. But guess what? I don't care how many MRIs you take. I don't care how many times you apply the MRI to the process. It is not going to fix the problem. What we need is a healer. But that doesn't mean we throw away the law because I need to understand that I'm broken and I need Jesus. So that begins to correct the view and the broken view that we have of the law. It's not our identity, but it certainly shows us our sin. It certainly says, by no means would we call the law sin. It's from God. If it hadn't been for the law, we wouldn't know that we needed a savior. That's, that's our first broken view. We don't want the law to be our identity, but we also don't want to throw out the law. Problem two is we believe the law has no value. We believe the law has no value. In other words, we see the law has no bearing in our lives because of an idea of grace, not the transformation of grace inside of us. We see, the. listen to me, we see the law has no value because of a concept of grace rather than the transformation that comes from grace. You picking up what I'm laying down? The concept of grace will lead you to something I think people will often call Christian liberty. I don't know if anybody's ever heard that term. Or, or wrap their, their heart around the idea of Christian liberty or Christian freedom. And you might think, well, I would never. And, and what that basically says is, okay, my sins past, present, and future are annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, kids that are in here, think about this. Like, think about, you can, I can do anything and my parents will never punish me. Like I get to live there. I never have to pay for anything. I never have to do anything. I can do what I want. I can steal stuff. I can lie. I can act how I want. I can have friends over when I want, even if they don't want me to, because I can do what I want anytime that I want to. Because it's completely paid for. Like it's all all done. No more punishment coming my way. Since past, present, and future annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. If that's the case, and this is the, the idea of Christian liberty, I should be able to do what I want. That's called licentiousness. I have license to do what I want. I've pulled my ticket. I'm covered. i got the righteousness of Christ on me. I can go live how I want. I can do what I want. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can just haul off and do a whopper. It's just covered. Right? Now, the truth in that is, yes, your sin is covered. Your sin's past, present, and future. That is scandalous to think about. But if grace has really happened, if it's really working in and through you and me then it does something to us. It's a spiritual transformation. It's not this concept of grace, like extending grace, and then I get to do what I want. No, grace has transformed you. This death to life has transformed you. It's changed you. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, listen to this, and he makes this beautiful transition. In verse 20, he says, The law was brought in, so the the trespass might increase. And that sounds real complicated. Basically, he's saying, because the law is there, we can see our sin. Again, it's the MRI, right? You know, the law brought in, so the trespass increases. We know just how bad and how dark and how lost we really are. But the good news is, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And that just means there's nothing that our God can't do. There's no one that's too lost. There's no sin too great that the cross of Jesus Christ didn't finish, That Jesus didn't complete His mission on there. Jesus paid it all. That's what He's saying. He's saying there's there's nothing that's going to overwhelm. There's no sin that's going to overwhelm the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace that came as a result of that. So that, and He goes on, so that just as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin reigned in death. We had no shot. And all of a sudden, grace comes. Not by our hand, but by Jesus Christ our Lord. He brought the eternal life. His righteousness is what we carry. Now, if the Apostle Paul had stopped there, then we might go, that's, that's crazy, so I can just do what I want, and you know, why, why, don't, we, why don't we just sin, and then it's going gonna, it's gonna to make just what Jesus did all the more great, because it's going to cover even my big boo-boos. But he goes on turns the corner in Romans chapter six. He says, well, what shall we say then? And he just says it straight up. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Should we just keep on doing it and just watch the glory of God and our, you know, covering of our sin? And what does he say? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He's saying there's been a spiritual transformation It's why I always say the epistles are structured this way. You've got three chapters in Ephesians that lead us to the cross and show us exactly how powerful and and how weighty it was what God did for you and what you've received. This spiritual deposit of the Holy Spirit and how it's changed you. You've gone from death to life. And then what's the transition in Colossians chapter 3? Since you've been raised with Christ. He's not saying you better do these things. Since you've been raised with Christ, your identity is different. Your, your identity is not here down on the earth. Your identity is on Christ. Your identity, you are part of a new kingdom, a new citizenship. And then he goes on in Colossians chapter 3 and says, how do we live our lives? What do our marriages look like? What does it look like to do this in the world? We're not going to do it the way that the world does it because that's not our identity. We don't want to walk back into the slavery that the world has. We want to stand and live in the freedom that Christ has given us. So we live differently. There's a spiritual transformation. So we don't just haul off and... you." you our desire will not let us do that. Something miraculous is, has happened to us. How we live matters. There's a guy, uh, he's, he's a Scottish preacher from the 1700s. I guess I felt guilty and needed to pad my resume a little bit and started reading some dead guys. Um. Um, but his name's John Witherspoon, and right before he came to the Americas, he was preaching in, in Scotland, and his last sermon, he talked about this, how the law is woven into the beautiful nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, if you preach the free forgiveness of sin through Christ without the same, I'm sorry, if you preach the free forgiveness of sin through Christ with, without at the same time showing the necessity of regeneration and sanctification by a spirit, it will either not be embraced at all, or it will be turned into licentiousness. And that word just means like, I can do whatever I want. I have license to do whatever I want. So either people want, if you preach free grace without sanctification and without the process and the change and transformation that happens in the heart, then either people are like, what's value is that in any way? Or people will just haul off and do whatever they want. He goes on and says, The privileges and the duties of the gospel stand inseparable in connection. If you take away the first, you starve and mortify the last. So the privileges and duties are inseparable. If you take away the gospel, if you take away the idea of grace, if you take away the idea that our sins past, present, and future have been annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ, then there will be no way for us to even walk towards righteousness. We'll just put on a veneer and we'll hide. The opposite of what God leads us to in First John. If we stay in the dark, then, then God's not in us. We want to walk in the light. We want to walk in transparency. We are not trying to hide the fact that we're sinful from the rest of the world. We want, we want people to see that sanctification is happening, that things are getting better. But we're not trying to put a veneer on so we're quote-unquote good Christians. I've, I've made the right decisions. I've made the right choices. So should you. But that they would see our lives, they would see our identity as set in something different, that we're no different and no better, but we're anchored to something completely different. I remember uh, years ago, actually, we had just started the church, and uh, somebody had asked to meet with me and Beth, and she was really upset about something, and she'd been to a party thrown by some people at OCC. Now, keep in mind, we were young when we started. Um, Gerald's laughing. You might have been at the party. Um, but it was a lot of college students, a lot of people together doing, and, you know, we, we're, we, you know, we are preaching grace. We are preaching that nothing, you, you did not do anything good to be saved. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You didn't make a choice because if you, if you think that you chose God, and you made the, the wise, and I'm just a little bit better, I was a little smarter, I moved in that direction to make the choice to choose God, that be- begins to walk you down the road of self-righteousness. They heard the same message, and they chose not to. No, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. It happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, you preach that, and, and if somebody has a broken view of the law, this is, this is the way that it works itself out practically. So young church, college students, we had a lot of energy and no money, um, and they had a party apparently, and she says, "I, w- I want to talk to you because I'm worried that this is what y'all believe, and it's unsettling." And she said, "I was at this party, and there was booze everywhere, like everybody's drinking. There was a girl underage throwing up in the bathroom. The guys outside were drinking and screaming freedom, as in Christian freedom, like chugging beer, like we've got, we can do, we can do what we want." And she said just clearly, "Like, is this what you believe?" And we're like. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And we went into a long conversation about exactly what we're talking about today. This idea of how the law is woven into who we are and woven into the gospel. So there's two problems, right? You've got the identity problem, like identifying in the law and being better than anybody else. And then you've got the problem of thinking that the law is useless when we know it's useful to... to, give us a picture, and illuminate our sin. But it's useful for another reason as well. And I want to illustrate it this way. I was thinking about how is the law woven into the gospel, like the, the journey of, of our stories of faith. And if you've become a Christian, it, it goes something like this. And I'll give you these five things. I know I don't have anything on the screen, and we'll fix that for the next crew that comes in. You're the guys that get, get nothing. Uh, and it's all my fault because I came up with these late in the game. But how does this work? So how does the the law woven into the gospel the way that it should be reverberate to the rest of the world? Well, you got these five things. One, we were lost. And you could probably remember these, kids. We were lost. We were found. And I'll go back through them. We are free. We can see. Now they can see. Let me say them again. We were lost. We were found. We are free. We can see. Now they can see. This is how it reverberates. And I'll go through each one of them. We were lost. The law reveals my sin. We were lost and all of a sudden I realized that I'm broken and I need a savior. I realized that I'm lost and wandering and I need to come home. I realized that I'm lost. The the law does a very good job of showing us that we're sinful. It starts that way. Our salvation has to start in the place of understanding that all of sin, including me, and fallen short of the glory of God. And I have no shot outside of that. It's not about, "Ah, I found my way in church. I've never really been that bad. It's the way that it operates and the way that it works. We were found. All of a sudden we realize there's a Savior. He's come and done everything. He he never gave up on me. He loves me. He came to rescue me. Jesus was sent to save me. He bled out. I'm broken and I'm sinful. I had no shot, but now I understand that I'm loved. His kindness has led me to repentance. So I was lost. Now I'm found. What's the result of that? We are free. We are free from the penalty of sin. All of a sudden we are free from The roads that we were headed down. We were free from creating identity through the world. Like trying to figure out, how am I going to have identity in the world? How are people going to like me in the world? How am I going to be of value in the world? How am I going to get pleasure out of the world? How am I going to live my life? We were free from navel-gazing, looking at ourselves and worried about ourselves. Now we've been taken care of because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we can lift our eyes. We've been talking about that. We were lost. We were found. We are free. Now we can see. Our eyes have been opened the spirit of truth and revelation that we see in Ephesians chapter one, that the eyes of our heart have been opened and now we can see a different way. Now this is the power of the gospel because before you were always going to choose death. We can now see something different. We can see a different pathway. We can see a different road. The law not only is an MRI, but it illuminates a path, a better way of living, a better way to live life. It's not just the MRI that shows us our sin, but after our, we've we've become Christians, the law leads us down another road and another path. David says this in Psalms. I love it. He says in Psalm one nineteen ninety seven. He says, "And who would think about the law this way? But it really is this way. Oh, how I love your law! I meditate it. I meditate on it all day long. I know you do too." In one twenty seven, he says, "Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold." One oh five. He says, "Your word." is a lamp for my feet and a light unto my path. The law is so good because it leads us into righteousness. It leads us to a better choice in life. And I'll give you an example. For you young kids, you might not be here yet, but for the teenagers on the stream, the ones that will be in the second service, this is probably a good example. When you're young, there's those moments in life, once you're a believer, and there's the thing that you want to do, your flesh wants to do, and then there's the right thing to do that the Holy Spirit's leading you away from it. You know what I'm talking about? Like the car pulls up, the solo cups are rolling, the bass is thumping, and you're like, I do want to go there with all those people, especially her, she's fantastic. And your brain is going in that direction, but the Holy Spirit's going, there's another way. And I'm telling you that is the way of death That is the way you will wake up and your life will look different and you will regret what you've done and where you've gone. I promise you. And the Holy Spirit's leading you down the the path of righteousness that didn't even exist before. Because without God, why would you even choose the lighted path, the lamp into your feet that leads you away from a situation like that? I'm going to live for myself. But now, because of the gospel, we can still sin as a believer. But now, where we didn't have a choice before, we'd walk into death. Now we have a better choice. We have a better way. To choose. Have you ever woken up in the morning after allowing the Holy Spirit to, to, to lead you and you were going to go to the thing, you were going to hang out with that girl or that guy, you were going to do these things or you were going to go down this road with somebody at work or you were going to do these things, but you listened to the Holy Spirit and you walked, you, you saw the law, you saw his commands as good and sweeter than honey as David's and said, I'm going to do this. And you wake up in the morning and you say, I dodged a bullet. Thank you, Jesus. I bet everybody in the room has done that. Woken up and said, in a moment of weakness, I could have made the worst mistake of my life. But the beauty of the gospel is not only that that we can walk down the right path, that if we walk down the wrong path, his mercy and grace never end. But he continually leads us on paths of righteousness for his namesake. It's amazing. The gospel is so much deeper and so much better than we ever imagined. So we were lost, we were found, we were, we are free. We can now see. Now they can see. Now this is the powerful thing. This is where it begins begins to reverberate all together. The gospel, God's commands and His law, all working together to show us that we weren't good enough. We had no shot without Him. We were lost. We were found. We can see we're now free. I can see I'm free to make the right choice. I'm free to not do the things I've always done. As a, as a parent leads his kids, we don't want, we put rules and regulations in the household because we love our kids. We don't want them to die. Don't run in the street. You're gonna die. There's another choice. There's another path that God's leading us to. But then they can see, not that we're better than they are, but that we, we are anchored to something different. The best example I can think of, and I'll end here, is the life of Daniel. Amazing story. Kids, Daniel in the lion's den. You remember that story? I mean, he was amazing, right? I mean, Daniel, the, just the things that happened in his life. He interpreted dreams, did crazy stuff. But in the beginning of his life, he was in a land that wasn't his own. Basically slavery. He was taken out of This is when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. And I'm talking about dirty, naughty place. I mean, it was everything bad was in Babylon. And all of a sudden, Daniel... And his boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and some, several others came, and they were going to train them and make them good Babylonians, that they would serve in the kingdom. But when Daniel came over, the way that he represented his life, the leverage he had, because he didn't compromise, but he also didn't condemn. That wasn't Daniel's job, was to condemn. And what you see in the beginning, in Daniel chapter 1, he is so respectful, but he gets to these places where all of a sudden, he can't do the things that the Babylonians are doing, Right? Because the law of God leads him in a, on a, a better path, a, a better path every time. The first one is like, it comes to food. He's like, I can't eat the king's food. I can't drink the king's wine. Is there any way we can get around this? And he does it, listen to me, he does it respectfully. He doesn't say, I'm not going to do that and post something on Facebook. We will stand our ground as Christians. He does it respectfully. He does it respectfully. He says, do you mind if I eat my food that, that God leads us to eat? And you can see at the end of the day if it's better and see if we're in better shape, me and my boys. You can judge for yourselves. And the guy liked Daniel because he was magnetic. He wasn't a jerk. And he said, let me see what I can do. And the king said, sure. And then the king saw him afterwards and said, these boys are awesome. They're 10 times better than, than our crew. Y'all go get some of them carrots and things from the Daniel diet. We're gonna get that on everybody. And then he continues to live his life that way with conviction. He never breaks stride. He never says, I'll believe what everybody else believes. He never falls into the crowd, but he's always honoring. He's always respecting. He's always doing things with excellence and living his life the way that God would have him live it. Not because he had to, and he felt threat from God. It was because he loved God and he loved the law and he knew God had his best interest at heart. And he knew that he was, he had a mission to represent God in a pagan culture the best way that he could, and it, people weren't always going to like it. People were going to be jealous, and that's what happened to Daniel. That's how he ended up in the lions' den. And the only way that they could catch him was to say, "Hey, make a decree that nobody else is supposed to pray or worship anybody but the king." And what happens? Of course, Daniel's going to pray three times a day. He was faithful. Got busted, and King Darius he likes Daniel. He thought Daniel was awesome. He had put him. He was getting ready to put him in command of the entire nation of Babylon. The most. The, the, at the time, the, the most powerful nation in the world. Daniel was gonna be in charge, man of God, not even a Babylonian. And people were jealous and they're like, oh, just, let's, make it, let's, let's trip the king up and, and make a dec- have him make a decree that nobody's supposed to pray. And then they catch Daniel and all, and Darius is upset because he's like, now we gotta do something about it. And what do they do? Kids, where do they throw him? In the lion's den, that's exactly right. They throw him in the lion's den. And it says in that passage in scripture, they roll a stone in front of the den. And then Daniel goes there. What, and what, what, does, what happens next when he goes in the den? Does he get eaten by the lion? No. Does an angel come? An angel of the Lord come? and shuts the mouth of the lion. And then he comes out of the, of the lion's den at the end of the day and the king is blown away. And this is what the king says. I, I love this the king of a pagan country that sees him. Because when our eyes are open, when we're free and our eyes are open and we can see, all of a sudden they can see. He says, I issue a decree in every part of my kingdom that people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel for he is the living God and he endures forever. Can you imagine? His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. It's a pagan king singing the praises of God. He rescues, he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Now they can see a different way, a different life that's led. Jesus, just like Daniel, he entered into the darkness of Babylon by the hands of evil men. And like Daniel, he was sentenced to death Like Daniel, he was sealed in a tomb with a stone to face death. Like Daniel, emerging from the lion's den, not dead, but alive, Jesus has risen from the dead. Not alone, but leading the captives, leading you and me, the condemned, the lost, the forgotten, out of the tomb, freeing us not only from the death penalty of sin, but also freeing us from the power of sin itself that we might not only emerge free from the grave, but also live free from the grave. That's what's possible for you and me. That is what what can happen to you and me. We should be set apart in the world, but not for the wrong reasons, not because we're whitewashed tombs, not because we think we're better than everybody else, but because we live free from the grave. We live free as people, not pent up and bound up in religion, but free to follow God and free to walk down the paths of righteousness for his namesake, that people will give glory to our Father in heaven. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love your word. It's so powerful in the way that it changes us. It's so powerful in what it does in our hearts. Just come, Holy Spirit. Lead us in the paths that shine light on your name.